0: Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Jose Vadi, grew up in Pomona, California and started skating in 1996. He moved to Oakland in 2002 to study history at Berkeley and fell in love with the Bay Area, where he lived and worked as a writer, content producer, and educator until relocating to Sacramento in 2021. That same year, Jose released his first book, Interstate a collection of eight poetic linked essays which explore California through many lenses. He is about to release his new book, Chipped, a memoir and essays about how skateboarding redefines space, curates culture, confronts mortality, and affords new perspectives on and off the board. So here's my conversation with José. I hope you'll enjoy it. So I usually just start, you know, with the same basic question with every guest about how my guests, you know, started skating. And so we'll talk about like what you do and as a writer and everything. Eventually, I want to talk to you about especially this upcoming book, Chipped, that I believe is coming out in 2024. I'm not sure when exactly, but sometime in the beginning of 2024 and that I had the privilege of reading before it came out. So thank you for that, for sharing it with me. Totally. And yeah, so tell me about like growing up and finding skating. I read in some interviews that you did here and there that you grew up uh, not very far from LA on the east, to the east of LA and Pomona, right?
1: Yeah, uh, east of LA, kind of like the eastern part of the county, and it's it's kind of right in between downtown LA and Riverside, which is Riverside's like in the Inland Empire, and so Pomona as well as like Claremont are like the last. Kind of last towns before you leave L.A. County into San Bernardino, Riverside County. Okay the county fair is out there so people kind of make like an annual pilgrimage out to pomona to go to the county fair and you know things like that but it's it's definitely in the cuts in in so far as like los angeles is concerned but close enough to go to downtown la on the weekends a lot and you know to the west of us is downtown la and then to the east of us is spots like chafee high school and you know some like notable kind of skate stuffs. um and yeah so i guess technically i'm from where like salba would probably call like the badlands yeah you know it's like between um, these certain freeways like the 15 freeway to the east and the 605 to the west so but yeah like Pomona is a really cool city we thankfully had a good we had like a skate shop in town when I was growing up but I found an old like kind of 80s style fishtail hammerhead kind of board mm-hmm. circa 1996 you know in my garage it had these big fat black um, like 60 millimeter wheels it was pretty much like tires almost and it was <laughs> a price club this kind of generic like what's what's now costco i guess you could say is it was like a action sport kamikaze complete skateboard that was a total ripoff of the Hosoi uh rising right. sun yeah yeah it was orange and black instead of red and white and it was a total boat of a skateboard you know and <laughs> just trying to it was broken to like the front truck's hanger was loose so if you kicked it up to do a manual or try and do a tic-tac it would totally switch directions and when you come back down (laughs) you're just landing on the kingpin you know so it was a it was a mess yeah Yeah. not the best board (laughs) not the best board but that's how i started like literally discovering a skateboard was in my garage yeah
0: do you have like siblings? I don't think I read that anywhere. If you had like a, maybe an older brother or, or someone in, in your surroundings that uh, kind of initiated you to skating or?
1: It's funny that that skateboard was left by a cousin of mine, Erika. She left it when she was kind of interested with it and we got it from her. But then I have an older sister and an older cousin who's like more or less like an older brother, you know. But mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. terms of siblings, I'm, I'm the youngest of two.
0: Do you remember uh, maybe like uh, your first magazine and the first video that you watched as a kid? You said you started in 1996, and which was a, a big year in skating. It's the year of Mouse, Welcome to Hell, and a few other ones. But uh, do you remember maybe the first mag and first video that you got your hands on?
1: Oh, totally. I was a I was totally like a trans world kid, you know, like I Mm -hmm. I definitely picked up a trans world from like a Stater Brothers supermarket stand. And I think that's how I got my first Thrasher too. I remember my first Thrasher was the Skater of the Year Eric Costin issue. He's doing a nose blunt down the Venice White Hubba. Mm hmm which is probably in mouse but yeah like that that era of mouse and welcome to hell and trilogy was like oh, trilogy right yeah yeah mm-hmm. that was that's like the maybe Eastern exposure to like those are considered like the big videos of that time but i think yeah. the first one i ever saw i borrowed a skate video from a friend and it was planet earth silver it was ty evans's first skate video i didn't oh. know yeah i didn't know that at the time okay. like, but in hindsight that's kind of like his film school
0: I don't think I've seen that one yet. Did it come out in 96 or a couple of years before? Or?
1: Yeah, like 96, 97, like around that time. It had like uh, Chris Lambert had the last part and Joey Bass had the first. Caesar Singe from Long Beach. But it had a lot of really good music. It had like Tribe Called Quest, a lot of Fugazi. Mm. So it kind of opened up those doors sonically as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was probably the first proper skate video I saw. But I remember quickly finding Welcome to Hell and Mouse, and, you know, uh, subsequently losing my mind (laughs) and getting quickly pretty obsessed about skateboarding after that.
0: And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about like how you first got interested in, in writing and poetry as well. Mm hmm. There was this little excerpt from Chips that I wanted to just read where you said, I started writing poems around the time I started skating, probably because skating got me outside. I remember answering people when they asked why or what I was writing that I was trying to describe the feeling skateboarding gave me. And I thought that was interesting, like that uh, what motivated you to get interested in poetry was to kind of express how you felt writing your skateboard, kind of. Is that how you like initially got interested in, uh, in poetry?
1: Yeah, it's that's kind of that was like the initial thing and then you know i quickly realized how hard it was to write about skateboarding you know and how hard it was to articulate that feeling but you know i definitely tried to get it on page but it quickly went to poems about you know all sorts of like bad love poems and just (laughs) you know puberty angst kind of stuff uh as you can imagine but yeah it was it was definitely like inspired or motivated by you know this new world that is skateboarding and and also a lot of music at the time like you know southern california regius the machine was coming out and that had a huge impact on me the lyricism mm. of zack de la rocha and uh the way that everything that he was bringing to the table very much spoke to me at the time it had a very much like a pedestrian point of view like you could tell in a sense you could kind of tell that he skated right like his, per- his perspective and the way that he was looking at the world was very much like someone who was outside and so mm. And then, you know, going outside and skateboarding, you encounter various systems of power, so all that was kind of speaking to me and wanting to articulate those things. There was also um, an early... MTV Sports was around on TV at the time. Mm-hmm. Maybe like 97, 98. They had some cool kind of art and sports specific shows that featured like Ed Templeton and Mike Vallely, or Vallely. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was doing spoken word at the time as well. I think Kian Liu was doing oh, spoken yeah. word. So like quickly I was figuring out that like there's all these kind of artistic skaters and yeah, writers yeah. and and also like through magazines finding the people in magazines who were like writing really cool record reviews and you know like finding those voices wasn't at point as well but yeah it's, it's kind of weird like in hindsight i don't i don't know why skateboarding made me want to write but i think music was a was a huge catalyst towards wanting to write by way of skate videos and getting into more and more music it exposed me to more and more like examples of lyricism and and writing in a sense yeah
0: And I saw also uh, that you got involved in, um, I don't know how to describe it, but like kind of associations around poetry, like uh, one of these organizations is called Youth Speaks. Yeah. I hadn't heard about that, and I, I I watched a couple of days ago the documentary that she eventually participated in making about um, Stockton, right? The city where they they were organizing a um, like a poetry contest, if I can call it that. Can you tell me about getting involved in those like movements or associations? And because that, that that feels very intimidating to me. Like, I mean, writing poetry in itself is a challenge, but to read it to other people in an audience must be quite difficult. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, that was. I was really drawn to that. I think um, as a participant, I got really involved with it in college. I I grew up like you know we're talking about in Southern California I moved to Berkeley to attend UC Berkeley and right quickly got into the poetry slam scene by my second year and it was everything that you described plus competition so you mm. know five judges are randomly picked from the crowd and they judge you on performance and writing and of those five scores the three the high and the low are dropped and the middle three are your score out of 30 and then okay. you, you advance to the next round and yeah so i joined uh through you speaks it's a non profit that still exists Based in San Francisco, they work with 13 to 19 year olds to get them involved in poetry. So they'll like take over an English classroom once a week and teach kids like spoken words specifically, and show them like YouTube videos or you know different documentaries. So through UC Berkeley and U Speaks, I was able to get into like these different slam communities, and eventually I became a, a workshop instructor for U Speaks into like right. my 20s. Yeah, like after college, and you know years later after grad school and stuff i got to do this project called off page which was a collaboration with you yes. and uh, a news yeah like this investigative newsroom called um the center for investigative reporting they have a podcast called uh reveal that's very popular mm-hmm. but it was like bringing journalists and poets together to do creative projects or to have poetry within investigations and it was this really weird kind of experimental project that They somehow let me do. And um, through that, I had some connections through the You Speaks network of poets in Stockton. And there's a local nonprofit there called uh, With Our Words, Um, this Mm -hmm. amazing woman named Tama Brisbane, who would eventually become like the poet laureate of Stockton. She created it and runs it. And it was a super bare bones, like after school program, similar to You Speaks. But Stockton is in the Central Valley, just south of here. Mm -hmm. It is a traditionally under resourced city. And at the time, it was the largest city in America to undergo bankruptcy.
0: Oh, yeah. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, so the newsroom was doing a lot of investigations around like how that happened, poor deals that the city made for new developments and new buildings that didn't really share revenue with the city, and then the impact on the youth, you know, who are facing a lot of gun violence, a lot of gang violence, and just a lot of lack of opportunity. So yeah, we did this whole documentary about it. It's called Broken City Poets. It's this short documentary, and we were just kind of embedded with them for about a year presenting facts from our reporters, and then allowing them to write creative work inspired by those facts. And it was interesting, you know, like some of the kids even skated. So there there was kind of an interesting connection of like them seeing me cruise around on a board and like just being able to have that kind of bridge as a then 20 something with like teenagers in a part of the state I didn't know much about. Yeah, yeah was really cool and just kind of seeing uh playing that role of like you're like proposing a creative thing for them to do but also recognizing like i don't know half of what your life experience is but here's like a place for you to talk about it Mm, but uh mm -hmm. but yeah it was like a real off-page project that was that lasted for a couple years after grad school and it really enabled me to kind of do a lot of cool creative work and kind of use poetry in a journalistic kind of light and um yeah it was really fun
0: To bring it back to skateboarding, like you grew up in Pomona and you said you just mentioned that you eventually moved to the Bay Area to go study at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So you studied in Berkeley for a few years. You studied, um, I think it was history at first, right? Yeah, history. Your first degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm And so tell me about like settling down and over there and and that transition, because like I'm sure it must be completely different, your everyday life in Pomona and all of a sudden being over there and being a young student and like how how stoked were you kind of and how did that influence your skating also? Because like you were skating in Pomona and all of a sudden you're over there and you have access to all these iconic spots in San Francisco and and around it. So yeah, tell me about like moving over there and your first few years uh, in the Bay Area maybe.
1: Oh man, I mean I I very much welcome the change from Southern California to Northern California like growing up uh, inland, you know, uh, you're so bound to a car, you know, it's, it's just absolutely frustrating. You know, I did have access to a car, like when I turned 16, I started going to shows in Hollywood more and all around the Southland, but you know, you're just so constricted to it. Whereas like moving to Berkeley, you're near the subways, you know, BART, Bay Rapid Transit, Mm -hmm. you know, way more buses. You just have so much more um, sense of like self and access and, and just kind of like, you can just navigate all day let alone on a skateboard so yeah. but i'll admit like when i moved to the bay i was very this is like 2002 i was very kind of hesitant to go all out and be like all right third in army let's go you know what i mean like i was i didn't really know like a lot of skaters i didn't really know i i, I mean i didn't really know anyone so yeah. and some of the spots were going through transition times so you know like embarcadero was gonna kind of getting built out into what it is now and yeah so it was an interesting time to arrive, but you know I started going to like Thrasher events and you know events that Deluxe hosted, or or mm-hmm. actually Five One O Skate Shop in Berkeley. They hosted a lot of demos right next to the dorms, so I was. There was definitely one time where I walked out and there's like the Rasa Libre team, you know, it's like the early 2000s, oh, nice. you know. And so some of those demos were really great entry points into the bay. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I skated around campus a lot and just seeing the spots, even as a pedestrian, was amazing. Like to see how terrifying some of these spots are in person, even if it's a ledge, you're like, and thinking about all the, all the tricks that went down, it's it's pretty amazing. So mm-hmm. I was super hyped. And, you know, I I lived in the Bay for many years after that. I I was there for about... Almost almost, 20 years, right? Yeah, pretty much like, yeah, almost 20 years. All after Berkeley, I moved to Oakland pretty much right after college and uh, stayed there for a while. But yeah, and I think when I moved to Oakland, I started skating more around Oakland and San Francisco and kind of felt more comfortable just... As opposed to being a student, there's a certain vulnerability of like fish out of water meets uh, balancing responsibilities as a student and wanting to give myself the opportunity to nerd out as and, you know, try new stuff. And also, like we we're talking about the spoken word, the slam community, that whole thing took over so much of my life that, you know, it was a lot of different things going on that I was trying to balance out.
0: And so you studied at Berkeley and eventually you did um, a master's degree at um, what was it called Mills College, I believe, in o- Oakland. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the middle of all this, you're skating, you're doing all this poetry and like building a whole community and network over there around those different activities. And eventually you started writing for different publications and you also did some other jobs on the side kind of linked to writing. But uh, yeah, you mentioned before, like you were doing this thing for uh, the off page project, the documentary that we just talked about. And you also worked for uh, Adobe at some point, uh, leading Mm a project for them called 1324 or something like that yeah can you tell us a little bit about that it's, it doesn't have much to do with skating but i just thought it was interesting uh, that you you were doing that for a while
1: Yeah, I got, you know, the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, you know, the tech industry is ever present, for for better, for worse. And uh, when I was doing off page, I met some folks from Adobe and pretty much got like scooped, recruited, however you want to phrase it, you know, to Mm -hmm. kind of be like a part of this project. It was like this youth initiative for 13 to 24 year olds, hence 1324. Right. Okay. It was like this work in progress kind of project that they were were trying to evolve into like a, a, a bigger initiative. And. Um, they hired me to be the creative lead and basically, like, help bring on commissioned artists to do projects for us, mm-hmm. work with the different Adobe product teams to do, like, different creative challenges. So, like, you're a filmmaker, here's... We're going to host on our website a creative challenge for you to apply to and you'll get like a free year of creative cloud and maybe mentorship or a free trip somewhere or something that'll help your career move forward so mm-hmm. we did like we did like partnerships with um Sundance film festival like a short film oh, challenge yeah. and uh mm-hmm. this uh maybe you've heard of it this graphic design event in germany called pictoplasma or in europe um
0: i don't think so no
1: what is it called pictoplasma it's like this uh graphic design festival but we even somehow it led to skateboarding like i got to do a one-off with um then it was the tony hawk foundation now the oh, skateboard right. project but mm-hmm. somehow through that job i got to interview tony hawk for the adobe oh blog. yeah
0: yeah i saw that w- what publication was that for
1: basically just their website you know like their okay uh, like the adobe website that but, must um, have been a
0: trip though yeah i mean tony hawk like <laughs> that's pretty cool
1: Like, that was kind of my first real, like, interview, you know what I mean? As, like, a a quasi-reporter, you know, during this transition after off-page and after grad school. Like, going into grad school, I was really hitting kind of a glass ceiling creatively and professionally as, like, a poet. And I was also doing plays and stuff and Uh just trying to find, like it just wasn't where I wanted to go as a artist or creative or however you want to phrase it. So Mm -hmm. grad school was like really diving into nonfiction writing, like what is it? What can it be? You know, what writers are out there? How does my voice work in this medium? And Mm -hmm. so you see that kind of coming out and off page through like documentaries and through Adobe, like I'm like commissioning artists and like articulating almost like creative briefs for artists. But like it's kinda of getting closer and closer to nonfiction writing over this time. And ironically enough, like that Tony Hawk interview was one of the first times I had to like be a reporter and like present questions and have everything kind of lined up and, you know, researched but Right. he was really he was like super gracious. and um, you know, through that project through Adobe, I got to like go down to the birdhouse HQ and and meet Tony Hawk and stuff. But we did this design challenge where we asked young people to submit kind of skateboard graphic designs around a certain theme, like a creative prompt. And Uh this young girl from Mexico City ended up winning the challenge. Tony, uh, Adobe, like we flew him out to San Diego. We all met there and got to hang out with Tony for the day and kind of like have lunch and see him skate. And it was, which was insane. That's rad yeah i'm like and it's like a work trip you know for me or or for everyone that we're with and but i'm like the skater who's just freaking out inside like yeah 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 yeah. like we walk in and it's like lincoln ueda blasting like 40s and then it's tony hawk doing his thing so random the way that uh work can sometimes lead to skateboarding but
0: Yeah, yeah it's amazing though yeah what year was that
1: maybe 2017 2018 okay and um and around that time i started freelancing more for, like, local journalism outlets like East Bay Express and stuff like that. And just trying to do more profiles and interviews around artists and creatives, mm. I thought, were really cool, but not getting a lot of press. And, um, yeah, it was that was a really interesting time. There was also, like, a, a bookstore on, in downtown Oakland called Wolfman Books that was hosting a lot of events and had its own publication. Above that bookstore is where, like, Unity Skateboards, one oh, of their, yeah. fir- like, early locations was. Okay, so, like, all this creativity is kind of happening after, like, you know, and so it was kind of helping me, inspire me to kind of write more and more nonfiction. And eventually that led to, like, Interstate and um, yep. all the kind of initial essays that helped spark it.
0: Yeah. Before we talk about uh, interstate, I just wanted to ask you also about your current work. It's uh, kind of uh, random, but uh, I was just uh, surprised to see that you were working with uh, UC Davis. I don't know if you still are, but uh, I believe you are. And uh, I was just uh, laughing when I saw that because this is just a very stupid story. But I, I used to work in the wine industry. Oh. And when I finished my master's degree, which was like in wine business, so to speak, I went to UC Davis for two weeks to complete like a little seminar over there. I don't know how to call it, but like a training of some sort. Yeah. And I didn't go to one single class of the thing because we were getting drunk every night with my <laughs> friends at, at the local wine bar near, near the, the campus. And I was like 24 and uh, an idiot and an alcoholic. Uh, no longer am, infor- unfortunately. But, uh, but anyway, so I do remember going to UC Davis, but uh, I didn't go to any of the classes and at the end, they gave me the like the diploma, the degree, despite me never showing up to one single class. And I, I felt like such a fraud, you know, like a, like a liar <laughs> uh, receiving this thing like, yeah, good job. You attended the, the course, whatever. And I was like, uh, no, I'm not really. Like I was just drinking every night and basically sleeping the rest of the day. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> that, that was my story with UC Davis. So how did you end up uh, working over there and what are you doing over there?
1: that's such an amazing story i I feel like you (laughs) you completed the course from the consumer side of it you know what i mean like (laughs) the the end results of the that's yeah uh i moved to sacramento my wife and i moved to sacramento two years ago right yes i guess still during the pandemic for sure and um
0: what decided you to move there actually? Like because you you said earlier that you really loved uh being in the Bay Area and stuff like uh was there a specific event that kind of made you want to move to Sacramento?
1: There was a lot of things, you know, like price of living was a big was a big reason, you know, the Bay Area is pretty expensive and my Adobe job like kind of ended in 2019 and I was contracting for, with them through the pandemic, but it wasn't, you know, long term. Mm-hmm. So I had like some flexibility as did my wife in terms of job. We have family here in Sacramento too. So being closer to them, like my wife's from here, my sister moved here a couple of years ago. So all those things combined, change of pace, but it's weird. Like I feel like I'm, it's more inland, right? And we're kind of in the central Valley. So Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm in a Northern California version of where I grew up and it's... uh, Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, it's a nice change of pace, and uh, the skate scene is pretty sick out here. Definitely hotter, and definitely, you know, know, inland weather. Oh,
0: then the Bay Area, you mean?
1: Totally, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. It'll be like 90 here, and overcast in San Francisco kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, you know, that was the impetus for the move, and so when I came out here, I was, you know, um, Interstate came out like two months after... I arrived. So I was doing like freelance stuff related to like the book and mm-hmm. some opportunities that came from that. But I didn't really have full time work until around this time last year. And I just, you know, was looking for opportunities here. And there's Sacramento State is here as well as UC Davis isn't, it's just like the next town over just west of us. So um yeah, I'm like a writer in the marketing department and I also work on stuff within the news team. So just doing like news stories about campus, you know. Yeah, but it's been about a year doing that. And it's nice working on a college campus and seeing a bunch of kids who are like way cooler and way smarter and uh with way more energy you know trying not to get hit by a a bike but as you know i mean like the wine industry and some of the professional industries out here are real big so like it's like there's a lot of hands-on stuff whether it's like the like the wine institute or there's like a brewing certificate too for like beer brewers and stuff so oh okay i don't know it's like a it's known as an agricultural school but there's a big like there's a lot of cool writers here i actually just read at the university like proper reading so my coworkers found out like oh this guy writes books and stuff but also writes with us in the marketing department it was like this interesting identity split but yeah, um, yeah that's rad yeah
0: and so we talked about Interstate uh, here and there since we started this conversation. Uh, so Interstate is um, a collection of essays, and I believe you wrote each essay kind of separately without really thinking of gathering them eventually to make a book that kind of happened organically later down the road, if I understand correctly. Totally. So can you tell me about like, how it all started, maybe like with the very first essay, and how long was this process until the idea for a book kind of emerged?
1: For sure. Yeah, like it really started around basically when I when I joined Adobe and you know the private sector and everything, you know, all that stuff like I really feared you know, not being a writer anymore, you know, like that I would just mm. like stop, you know, like I was, I was working for, you know, literary nonprofits, like You Speaks for so many years or, you know, different kind of artistic nonprofit industry things in the Bay Area for right. so long that it's like, you know, I welcomed the change of pace, but I feared that going to a corporation that I would just stop writing, you know, straight up. Yeah. So I kind of like, it forced me to like double down on like, on just committing to writing you know so mm-hmm. and you know coming a couple of years out of grad school too it's like wanting to fulfill some of those like ideas too so I wrote this essay about my so like right before university. I wrote this essay for a website called color lines and it was about actually New York and my dad grew up in New York in, in Harlem right yes and his building that he grew up in is. From the age of like seven to 22 there's a gas line that caused an explosion and the building blew up oh, Wow! Okay. yeah i think uh, at least eight people were killed if, if and uh it was a terrible incident yeah and it led to me writing about that and writing about like my dad finding out about it and him kind of talking to people back east about it and that was like my first essay that got published and got me thinking about the types of stuff I wanted to write around like place, both the physical place, how we memorialize place through like oral histories and storytelling. That was the other thing about the essay was that a couple years before the building blew up, my dad and I actually went to that building and I filmed us going up into like every floor and him telling me like, this is who lived here. This is who lived here. This is the new tile. This is the old tile. Kind of like a skater, you know, like talking about yeah, a ledge yeah. or something, you know? So that kind of got all these gears going. And then when I got the job doing Adobe, I was like, and kind of committing to the writing. The Bay Area was changing a lot at the time. You know, the price of living was going up. A lot of people were getting pushed out. A lot of small businesses were getting shut down. Salesforce was redeveloping downtown with the Salesforce Tower, which is now the biggest in the skyline of downtown San Francisco. So all these things were happening and I started trying to write about how I was living and experiencing those changes within the city. And I started doing these like kind of like this pedestrian lurking at different points of the day you know because of public transportation being pushed to the gills with a lot of new people coming to the Bay Area I was going into the city super early for work and then leaving like much later after rush hour at night to go back to Oakland and so mm-hmm. I started like documenting those different parts of the day and that led to the first two essays of the book getting to Susie's and standing in the shadows of brands those are the first okay. two I wrote getting to Susie's is uh, your wife experience actually is is kind of very similar to the susie's essay which is like every monday i would go to a dive bar in a certain oh right center. yes yeah and you and, would
0: uh, you, sorry to cut you off but you was were again. talking about like this, the songs you were selecting for the jukebox right yeah
1: yeah, and so kind of like self appointing myself as the DJ for the bar every week, yep. and then in the mornings, like waking up super early and talking about the city, waking up at you know, and, and the different parts of the city that maybe my coworkers in a corporation don't see, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So just kind of talking about the city and this like relationship I had with it as a pedestrian, as a as a worker, you know, as a as someone who's kind of seen the different changes over the course of like two decades. Mm -hmm. So it started locally. And then I started, I I remembered, you know, based off of that dad essay of like this film that I made of my dad, I remembered on my mom's side, I recorded way back in undergrad. And when I was at Berkeley on a high camera, I recorded my grandfather on my mom's Mexican side, kind of telling me about his oral history, knowing that like I needed to have that on tape, you know, even if and that was like circa that was like in the mid 2000s.
0: He was a farm worker, right? In the Central Valley, your grandfather?
1: Yeah, he he worked farms from pretty much Oklahoma, Nebraska, all the way out to California. And then in California, it was like up and down the Central Valley, as far north as San Jose and as far south as maybe the Imperial Valley, like over by Coachella and stuff. Okay. But yeah, he worked all over. And I I knew some of the places where he worked, some places where he didn't, and... With his, like, the oral history on tape and the knowledge I kind of inherited from family, I started using work trips to L.A. as, like, research trips to find out, like, like fly in an extra day or rent a car or something like that and, like, go on road trips to kind of see where he may have passed through and right, to kind yeah. of see, yeah, and see what has, what has changed and what hasn't. And hmm. that led to this massive, you know, essay called Interstate that's that.
0: The first one in the book, yeah
1: yeah so that like meanwhile you know like those initial essays i wrote about the bay area they're getting published online through this editor i met Mensa de he oh, yeah. was yeah like he kind of pulled me up from the slush pile of like you know some cold submissions and stuff like that and he was an editor for this online magazine called catapult and he kept inviting me to submit even if he was telling me like this piece doesn't work like but change it this way and just trying to like grew me into like a better writer you know right and yeah. um so we started developing these essays and then basically this book was just me and him emailing drafts to each other and when i emailed interstate over i think that's when we realized like oh yeah this is the centerpiece of the book and everything will kind of revolve around this but this is pretty much between maybe 2016 17 and 20 i don't know 2020 okay so this is when we just had this back and forth, which is a very long time. And, you know, I have to give him a lot of credit for trusting me to continue, like grinding out these essays that may or may not have become a book, you know?
0: At what point did you kind of um, sense that you could put these all together as part of a puzzle? Like, was there a a turning point where you decide, oh, like this makes sense? Like, as you said, maybe submitting the interstate essay, was that kind of the pivotal moment or...
1: It was like right before right before then there was a third like Getting to Susie's came out, Standing in the Shadows of Brands, and then a third essay called A California Inquiry, which is also in the book. I think at that point my editor was like, All you're writing about is California, how it's changing, the physicality of it, um, the history of it like this is what you need to pursue and that's what gave mm. me the agency to like go back to my grandfather tape and realize like oh i need to digitize this for my own sake let alone maybe there's something for the book and yeah you know lo and behold that that essentially was the book
0: and so that book came out uh, in 2021 right mm-hmm. after you had moved to uh, sacramento right
1: yeah, September 2021. And so, you know, it was funny, like receiving the books here in Sacramento as a totally different, totally different location from where I wrote it. Um, Like, yeah, a lot of it was written on public transportation, like a lot of it was written like all over the Bay Area. So uh, it it was interesting having that that change of pace, but a welcome change of pace for sure.
0: And so let's talk a bit about maybe this uh, new uh, book that you're about to release called Chipped, which is more focused on skating. Like there is some skating in interstate, but it's not the main theme of the book, of course. hmm. How did you start working on that? And I think you said earlier that you were hesitant, maybe when you were younger and starting to write and stuff, like you were hesitant to write about skateboarding, perhaps because you loved it so much and you wanted to give it justice or something like that, like you didn't want to do a bad job at it or something. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. But uh, what kind of happened that made you decide, like, let's give this a try. Let's try to do something on skating and uh, and we'll see where this takes me.
1: Oh, yeah, like a, a lot of different things, you know. Um... Well, one thing is, like, you're right, like, Interstate's very much about California. There is one essay in there called Spot Check that was me kind of testing the waters of, like, maybe I can write about skateboarding. And it's about, it's all about basically taking, <laughs> yeah, basically eating a weed edible, going to a Godzilla movie marathon, quickly being <laughs> over that marathon, and then going to out and trying to find spots, you know, in San Francisco, which is a very fun, exhausting day, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, it got me thinking about, like, I was I realized, like, I could talk about all these different aspects of my skateboarding history within an essay, and that it didn't have to have like a straight narrative, A to Z historical through line, it could be almost like vignettes encapsulated within or housed within an essay. Mm -hmm. So I then started thinking, like, well, what would that look like on a bigger scale? And Spot Check was one of the last essays I wrote for Interstate. And so I kind of had that momentum going in afterwards of like, like I still have this itch to write about skating and I started writing I started submitting to actual like skate publications during this time too like um I started writing for free skate magazine and yep. I started just kind of thinking about giving myself the agency to think about skateboarding and kind of my thoughts on it in ways that you know kind of giving myself the agency to really just just try and give myself a like a, a like my own chance to kind of do it you know and sure yeah I had these ideas floating around in my head for a while that I knew didn't work for Interstate, but maybe could work for someplace else. And and that speaks to skateboarding's culture and where it's at, you know, since social media and the past, you know, 10 years or so. The rise of all these different publications, the rise of more of less American-centric publications, mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. kind of long format, you know, s- spots like Free. You know, the work that Quarter Snacks does as well is really interesting. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so many beautiful magazines out there. Like solo magazine is insane. Yeah. Like like it's just like from solo to like Skate John, that's so accessible. It's just there's so much cool stuff out there. And so that the culture was also inspiring me and, mm-hmm. and like I like I mentioned earlier, like seeing what Jeff Chung was doing in Oakland through Unity and seeing that evolve was really inspiring as well, in addition to like a lot of the literary scene in the Bay Area. So all these kind of forces were very encouraging and very supporting. So I was, I think the big thing for me though was writing about Kareem Campbell's part in Trilogy and how oh, it yeah. reminded yeah, like how it reminded me of this memory I had with my mom about music and I think writing that essay and publishing it with Free and the reaction it got from folks really encouraged me to continue writing about skateboarding. Yeah skate twitter as well like getting getting down with that crew was was you know in the in the digital realm was cool and you know meeting writers like kyle beachy through there was encouraging i think he mm. he had a tweet about this video that joey cinco did about these two skaters whose names i'm forgetting i think one is chase brunner but i think it was for dVm clothing and it okay. was like this this really weird short film and i wrote like a I self-published, like, a review of that and sent it out to, like, the skate Twitter folks. And just, like, giving myself the agency to do stuff like that was was just fun. And that was that was kind of how I started writing about skating more and, and getting to know more folks within the kind of, I don't want to say the industry, but this kind of nerdy collection of, you know, folks that are trying to talk about skateboarding in creative ways. And yeah and I was catching up to a lot of things, too. Like, I was catching up to things like pushing borders and, oh, yeah. reala- mm-hmm. like, realizing these things happen after the fact and then you know um like I knew about things like Ocean Howell and and his work in academia but I wasn't as up on things like like Ted Barrow's feedback project and stuff like that like I wasn't up on it as much as I could have been I was Mm -hmm. kind of just keeping my head above water in terms of like knowing where the industry's at and like always having a, a subscription to mags but but yeah I really started kind of like finding my place through some of these publications like free and quarter snacks and I'm starting to interview people like like I did an interview for quarter snacks of Norma Ibarra who's an amazing
0: yes I saw that but I, I haven't checked out the interview but I saw it on your website that you had yeah. done that yeah yeah was it for quarter snacks or for free
1: yeah for quarter snacks and and you know like figuring out how to like pitch skate magazines the same ways that I was pitching you know non-skate like taking those skills from like journalism and stuff and applying them towards skating. I was just realizing like I had just more to say or like I just had, you know, uh, I, I wanted to kind of tell certain stories or highlight certain people. And it was fun getting like a positive response from from some of those efforts and getting to know more skaters that way too. And I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was kind of just part of a larger push of just writing more and like uh, not wanting to allow basically a job to take away my desire. Creative, uh, yeah, yeah definitely
0: yeah. yeah so how long did it take you to complete this second uh, book like uh, was it a bit quicker i guess than the the first one
1: yeah it, it came much faster thankfully part of it was the desire to not like torture myself as much but also <laughs> like you know to to continue the momentum i had from interstate and and knowing how long a book you know, from that experience, knowing how long it takes for a book to be like done and turned into an actual book, like you know, you, the writer might complete the first manuscript, but then it goes through two rounds of copy edits, so then two rounds of edits as it's laid out as a book. and then and then it's another like nine months until it hits shelves. like knowing how long it takes compared to like, you know, uh, journalism or even like short films, right? Allow me to kind of understand, like, oh, If I can keep this momentum going, you know, by the time Interstate comes out, I might have like a good amount of this manuscript done for, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever this thing is. And um, but, you know, like right after Interstate, I started, you know, kind of writing some of those articles for free. And then when, when Interstate actually came out. I thought that people were going to talk, ask me about like my grandfather a lot, or like um, maybe the Bay Area. But a lot of people wanted to talk about skateboarding, and they're like, "There's so much skating in the book." Skate-, like, and I was really fascinated by that. And like, I didn't write chipped because people like noticed the skating in interstate, but mm-hmm. it just continued to give me that agency that you know, for whatever reason, I was hesitant to explore around like writing creatively about skateboarding. And so, you know, the first big. The massive essays in ships, like this essay about Sunraw called King Shit and this other essay about at Templeton called Programming Injection. Oh yeah.
0: The last one, I think.
1: Yeah. Those are like the two big massive things I started with and then mm-hmm. everything else followed from there. But it was like if I can if I can tackle these two super nerdy, super like massive kind of projects, then, you know, everything else should be should be all right yeah so you know or like but like let's do the craziest ideas first or like you know quote unquote like like let's do like what i think might be the hardest to tackle or the, the right, biggest yes. leaps or the biggest stretches for an audience like let's see what that is and then go from there yeah but it's like a appeasing the fears too it's like mm-hmm. you know But yeah, that's kind of how it all started. And um, thankfully, like my editor at Soft Skull Mensa, you know, just super supportive. And the whole press, too, has been like really encouraging. So throughout this whole process, I'm like gingerly sending them little drafts along the way. Like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And they're like, you know, very much giving me constructive feedback along the way, too. So that was it's it's all kind of an evolution of the relationship we started with Interstate.
0: Right. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And so, when is it coming out? I know it's in 2024, but uh, do mm-hmm. you have, like, a release date already, or?
1: Yeah, April 16th, 2024. Okay.
0: Yeah. Why then, and not, like, earlier or later? But is there a reason for that date, or is it a...
1: No, no reason. You know, it's really just the... It's, it's kind of out of my hands. It's up to the publisher, kind okay. of thing, you know?
0: It's their, like, schedule, and... Okay.
1: Yeah, so, I'm like, whatever sounds good to y'all, I'm down with. But I think it was... Um, yeah interstate came out like in september so maybe they want like i mean well one thing is the olympics is coming up in 2024 so maybe there's some like pre-summer hype connected Mm. with that but who knows
0: it was super interesting and you just mentioned sunra and uh there was just a couple of sentences that i uh noted down that i wanted to maybe ask you to develop a bit for our listeners here I didn't know about Sun Ra personally. Like I love music, but I'm not a big music like connoisseur, or, and uh, I didn't know about him and in uh, his music. And uh, you've mentioned him a bit throughout the book, but especially in that essay, that specific essay that she mentioned. So the sentence that I wrote down was basically: Sun Ra, the persona, frequently precedes the musician, band leader, cultural dark horse. And it's one reason why the myth of Sun Ra makes him, in my eyes, a skater, an extremely disciplined young man, obsessive to the technical prowess of his craft and mentored across generations at home in Arkansas. And I thought it was interesting like that you would consider him a skater, even though I guess he never skated or probably not. But like, yeah, can you tell us about maybe your love for Sun Ra, how that started and and how he inspired you to write this specific essay in the book?
1: For sure. Yeah, I mean... I just had this crazy I mean Sun Ra like that quote in particular is talking about how Sun Ra the persona is very much seen as like this abstract interterrestrial you know being who kind of Mm -hmm. like almost like improvs his way into jazz or into music and I think the point I was trying to make is that yes he's all those kind of things and like he is this this kind of uh He presents himself in, you know, certain garbs and tropes that make him look like a a regal kind of intergalactic figure. But he is one of the most, like, disciplined and trained pianist and jazz composers, you know, arguably of all time. And it's that discipline and that training that allows him to do everything from big band swing numbers to, you know, being one of the progenitors of, you know, free jazz Mm -hmm. and that type of sonic structures or lack thereof. It's almost like that discipline roots him in a way that enables him to do whatever he wants. Like if he wants to be an alien, he can be an alien. If he wants to be a big band leader, he can do it. And I think that like self-actualization by way of obsession and skill and trade is so indicative of skaters and you know like no one like skaters are we're so prone to referring to ourselves in the third person or to you know or to Mm. kind of see skaters as being pro skaters in particular being like something beyond their physical selves and something beyond what they just appear on everyday life you know and that type of alchemy and that type of like creativity i find it so frequently in musicians and i find it so frequently Mm. in like those types of creative forms in addition to skateboarding and i i don't think it's surprising how much the relationship between music skateboarding and skate videos is you know that that dna strand like it's not really surprising giving the types of characters that created music and like Sun Ra. So during the pandemic, you know, I wanted to get outside of my everyday <laughs> existence, you know, like like I think a lot of us did. And I was listening to a, a bunch of Sun Ra and imagining, sometimes when I listen to music, I imagine what the musicians look like when they're performing it, like in the recording studio. Like it's just like a fun exercise of, you know, listening to like a, I don't know, like a Depeche Mode song and imagining like how they're dancing in the studio or not, you know, like creating like this, these very stiff men Like this very heavy (laughs) dance music or something, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you look at how the deeper you go into Sun Ra, you realize like all of his recordings were made in non-traditional spaces. They were released in totally haphazard DIY, you know, kind of formats through their own record label. And it's like this again, this kind of agency of self and this kind of self determination turned into artistry that just made me think about skateboarding so much. And as a writer, and particularly poets, I feel like poets are like so connected to the streets like they perform the most they get paid the least they are like (laughs) the they're kind of like the shock troops of literature in a sense you know like they're kind of on the the, and so much of being a poet is reflecting an environment Mm. and so all these things kind of started speaking to me and so i I started just trying to think about like how how does skateboarding kind of weave these things together and and how do we kind of actualize as skateboarders physically through music and the world that sonics creates you know and for us as skaters and like i love this recently there's been conversations about how similar dance is to skateboarding and how if skateboarding were to be considered an art it should be considered akin to dance over anything else and things like that like i love conversations like that because it's it grounds what we do in such a more interesting way than like shut up and skate or, you know, even skate yeah. and destroy, you know, it's <laughs> just like, not that everything has to be an artistic act, but it shows the power of having a relationship with body and sound and space. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's kind of what I was trying to explore a lot in the Sun Ra essay. And also just show like the naysayers of Sun Ra and the people that had to advocate for him like other musicians like jackie mclean the restrictions on spaces that jazz musicians were able to access through cabaret cards and the kind of racism behind that and similar to the kareem essay about how you know world industry skaters in the 90s predominantly people of color were skating some of the most policed parts of la during this extremely corrupt period of the 90s yeah I wanted to kind of show skaters that like the freedom and that you might associate with someone like Sun Ra, the free jazz movement or this kind of abstract, let it all hang loose and stuff like that's a reaction to repression and it's a reaction to having spaces being taken away from you. Mm hmm. And I think that's ideally something skaters can relate to beyond like the spatial level of like, like spots, but also like what happens if you need a cabaret card to skate? Like what happens if you need a, something like that to, you know, and so like as skate parks were getting filled with sand during the pandemic and oh, yeah. even, even the legal places where you're told to skate are being taken away, all these things kind of were speaking to me through that essay.
0: Also, I remembered uh, that you uh, compared Sunra to, um, what's his name? Uh, Sage, Sage, uh, I don't know how to say his last name, Elsesser. Is that how you say his last name? Yeah, I
1: believe uh, Sage Elsesser. yeah.
0: Yeah, that's right, who writes for uh, FA and uh, Converse and uh, Mm -hmm. and Supreme. And uh, I didn't know that, like I remembered his part in the Blessed video, Mm-hmm. From twenty eighteen around there, but I didn't know it was Sunra actually that music that you hear over his part mm-hmm. i I liked how you described how he was kind of an incarnation I guess of Sunra or his music or something like that, um and the way he did his heel flips, especially like with so much power and pop and everything. I just thought it was interesting but did did you think about that because of the the Sunra music that scores his part, or like what what kind of made you think of uh his skating and the way he skates his persona? And everything and how it relates to sunra
1: yeah it was definitely triggered by i guess William Strobeck deciding to use that song for for Sage's part, or maybe maybe Sage decided to use it. I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. it's a it's a yeah. Sunra is playing the keys on that, and it's a stripped down quartet, I believe, and uh, it was recorded like in the 70s in in Italy. But yeah, it's it's a it's a rare song within the Sun Ra universe because it's not like a big band, and it's uh you know it's just it's more minimalistic composition, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, very slow paced and very uh, slow, yeah.
1: you know, and with words and Sage is one of my f- absolute favorite skaters. And I feel like he, his skateboarding, I think reconfigures space in a similar way that Sunra's compositions redefine what a song is, what a composition is. And in the essay where I'm kind of describing Sun Ra as a skater, I'm imagining him as doing the most bombastic stuff, like a heel flip over a car from flat and like, oh, yeah, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, stuff like that. Like, and, you know, allowing myself to kind of, you know, drift off into these imaginary scenes but sure. you know when you when you see some of sage's tricks and when you and being from you know the bay and seeing some of the spots that sage skated it's absolutely unbelievable some of the stuff that he grinded yeah, in yeah, in yeah. that part <laughs> and like and it's just it's shocking you know what I mean yeah, and, yeah. and that kind of like bombastic pop and that super almost human ability to get that high that we've seen in folks like kian Lu or you know um yeah the brandon Westgates of the world like people with like massive you know huge pop but um the way he does it and in addition to the way that he approaches his music as navy blue and asking folks to you know hold space differently in live venues to you know oh
0: yeah yeah you said he he asks his audience to meditate or something like that right prior to yeah. the show or something
1: yeah like i think even like during sets or before his set and just you know a different relationship with your audience and reconfiguring the space as an artist to match the vibe that you're trying to create. All those things were like, were just interesting examples. And it was probably the most contemporary use of Sunraw in a, in a skate mm. video I can think of. You see some like Sunraw, like I think theories of Atlantis do some like Sunraw related shirts and stuff over the years. Oh, and cool. Okay. You see like certain tributes out there, but... That was like, you know, using Sunraw in a Supreme video was really cool. And I thought that, you know, hopefully it got a lot of folks into some of Sunraw's stuff. Um, it's yeah, a very yeah. massive discography to choose from um, with different eras. But, uh, you know, yeah, that, that was fun to write about Sage and how uh, insane of a skater he is.
0: Yeah, he definitely is for sure. And it made me like uh, just uh, reading the book and I rewatched uh, Sage's part a few days ago to kind of refresh my memory, and, but it matches his skating so well. Mm. And uh, it made me want to listen to some Sun Ra. Uh, I'm not a big jazz like uh, connoisseur, again. Like I don't listen to much jazz, but uh, this definitely made me want to check out his music and like get a bit more interested in it. So I'll try to check out some of his albums. I'll ask you for some album recommendations after this. But
1: <laughs> oh yeah, if anyone, I mean, for you or anyone, like the documentary "A Joyful Noise" that came out in the '70s, but it's a beautiful documentary on Sun Ra. Okay. Yeah, I think it's called A Joyful Noise, but it has some amazing live performances in there that um, can get folks going in the right direction. But yeah, like, cool. I'm glad you thanks for checking it out.
0: There was just this other sentence that I wanted to ask you to maybe develop a bit from the book. Uh, It's again related to, not to Sun Ra, but to jazz, to jazz Mm -hmm. music in general. So you said, it is, uh, talking about jazz, it is the new place from which I want my skateboarding to emerge, not from the rage of young distortion pedals, but (laughs) of a discipline that can only be heard in years. I thought that was interesting because that speaks to me as I'm an older skater like you. And uh, of course, as you get older, your level of skating becomes less good, I guess. Or I mean, it depends of the skater, of course, like uh, some people like Guy Mariano or like from another planet or something. But, uh, but for the, like, the mere mortals that we are, like our level of skating <laughs> <laughs> tends to go downhill and uh, you know, not as much uh, progression as, as when we were teenagers or young adults. But I thought it was interesting. Yeah, could you tell us a bit about your relationship to skating and how you want to approach it, kind of like a jazz musician, I guess?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny. It's it's kinda of drawing that comparison of like when you're young and a kid and you know, you're listening to like uh I don't know, like a Punkorama mixtape or something and it's just like it's just like full that full punk rock energy or that full initial hip hop energy of just like that youthfulness that you you know we associate with Tony Hawk Pro Skater like for a reason you know like it's just like those kind of songs I think it's what I came away from like a lot of the research with Sun Ra and just jazz in general was just the discipline and dedication led to a lot of musicians being able to execute their form wherever and whenever they wanted to you know it's it's like this kind of lifelong commitment that Like the beauty of punk rock is that you can buy a guitar, learn three chords and you're in the remotes. you know what I mean like like, there you, like <laughs> you can you can get it going right yeah and, but there is a certain like I guess wisdom or just like just certain kind of lifelong dedication to the craft that like I guess I wanted to approach my skating with and I, I think it was also kind of unlearning a lot of the traits of being a 90s skater like unlearning this idea of like linear progression of, yeah you know mm-hmm. of not doing slappies of uh, certain tricks being cool and not cool unlearning that and being able to just try whatever I wanted to try, knowing that it's part of a larger continuum of being a skateboarder.
0: I wanted to ask you just before we start wrapping this up and heading to the friends questions, you went to Slow Impact in uh, February, I think of earlier this year. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you, how was that experience? I just just released recently an episode with uh, Ryan Lay, and uh, he said he was hopefully going to try to do another event early 2024. But I was wondering, like, how was your experience over there? How did you enjoy it?
1: Oh, it was fantastic. I really, I enjoyed your episode with Ryan Um, and the amount of work that he and everyone in Tempe, Arizona does to keep that scene going is, is really amazing. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. It was, it was such a great, like skateboarding wellness retreat, you know what I mean? Slash symposium, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like it was, it was really cool and i got to meet a lot of skaters who i only knew through online and right um, yes
0: like the skate twitter people and stuff yeah
1: yeah like i got to meet just just i mean a lot of a lot of folks um i think i like literally the day before i moved to sacramento i met ted barrow in person for the first time so oh, cool. like even though we're like apart from sacramento in the bay area like we were able to like s- spend time together like kyle beachy it was really fun and um i I was asked by kyle to come out to read at the friday night reading at ryan's backyard yes i'm so surprised that he i mean him and his whole family just opened arm you know like let all these skaters into the. yeah that's amazing yeah this amazing reading all sorts of different voices
0: what did you read i didn't know uh what you read to the to the audience on that night
1: yeah, I got to read um, the first couple of pages of Spot Check. So it's about Hubba Hideout. And right. um, and just like, yeah, it's just kind of about Hubba Hideout and how the terminology is rooted in, in Bay Area vernacular around drugs and, you know, Hubba being crack cocaine. Yeah. I got to go on after Cole Nowicki. And Cole Nowicki was, like, absolutely hilarious and burned the house down. So a tough act to follow. <laughs> uh, but that was really fun being in that space full of skaters and them just, like, I think a lot of writers there were like that was like the best reading because literary readings can be so jaded sometimes and so like uh people can be very checked out and i feel like at all the panels as well as the reading on friday night people were like fully engaged you know like there was no i think it was the vent city podcast said it best it was like you can't be a cool guy in tempe arizona or something like that you know like it was (laughs) everyone was very present and i felt that during the reading and you know everyone from like like betsy from the smithsonian is there to jerry sue you know and like the sci-fi team it's it's like a real eclectic crowd but everyone is is there together and that was kind of like the theme of the whole the weekend yeah it was really fun but like just to kind of clarify some things i tried to say earlier is like it was really nice meeting so many new skaters some of whom I've been like reading for years. Like I totally geeked out on like Mike writer. I'm like, man, the skateboard mag, I loved all your little articles and stuff. It was so cool. And like, so like getting to to fan out a little bit was fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting to see skaters like Ryan skate their local skate parks that they helped design is like, is pretty insane. Um, I'm
0: sure, yeah. As
1: you can imagine, that dude skates very fast. yeah. And, you know, having a party the last day at the Wedge, you know, this historic skate spot where that we've all seen in videos. And but I mean, the, the panels were just so special and so rare. And I'm glad that they published them online. And I'm glad mm. that the reading that the reading is not online. I feel like a lot of the things that were shared were just, you know, for that space. And exactly I think was, for that
0: moment, for those people. And yeah, yeah, sure.
1: So that was that was really fun. So, yeah, hopefully we can get it going in February. And I know a lot of folks in the Midwest and East Coast, like, you know, we have rain out here, obviously, in California. But like a lot of people were like thawing out when they showed up to Arizona. Like, they, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I feel like for the Midwest and East Coast folks alone, slow impact is just is, is for you.
0: They're looking forward to uh, the next edition, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, I think uh, they got a good thing going on over there in Tempe. So happy to support however I can.
0: And so what kind of projects are you working on right now? Like, so you have this book coming out in April, as we said, Mm -hmm. is it finished at this point? Like the version that I read, is it like the end product? Or are you uh, still kind of correcting a few things or is it like done at this point?
1: Correcting like the last, last few things. Like, so like, like the, the quote you read earlier instead of Arkansas should be Alabama. Like, you know, things like that, like little tweaks, things I, uh, but yeah, so we're in the, like the copy editing stage. and I think there's basically like um two rounds of copy edit and then two rounds of looking at it laid out and we're on the last layout. So like by December first, like it'll be sent to the printers. so yeah, last the last leg of copy editing basically, but yeah, it'll be out as a hardcover in April. Mm-hmm. Softschool press, you can pre-order it now and whatnot. There's also, Speaking of skaters with books, there's going to be Cole Nowicki's second book, not the Tony Hawk book, a second book. Yeah, yeah.
0: Another one? Okay.
1: It also comes out next year, I believe in April as well. So cool. two skaters, two books to keep an eye out for.
0: So you have this coming up and what else are you like working on these days? So you're still working at UC Davis. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other like uh, books in the works or essays or other stuff?
1: Got some uh, some articles coming out. I'm working on like a, I write for this um, journal called Alta, Alta Journal of California. Yes. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm working on some stuff for them and some other kind of random commissions. So like, yeah, some freelance kind of articles. And then um, I am thinking about a third book idea, I'm trying to figure it out right now. But like hopefully through the holidays, I can start maybe like plotting out what that looks like trying to give myself some time between projects but sometimes the momentum just carries you into from one to the other so Mm. but yeah definitely writing and you know starting my third year in sacramento now and just getting to know the city more and more every week and uh enjoying it out here one of the best things about slow impact or since slow impact has been like a lot of the people I've seen over the course of this year have been people I met from slow impact. So like whether it's in LA or in Portland or here in the Bay slash Sacramento, like I've been able to see a lot of folks and have a lot of sessions with folks in town. So hopefully more of that into the coming year as well, but yeah, just, just staying writing and, uh, and, you know, I really hope I can tour a little bit around chipped and try and like, you know, see some different parts of the country next year in, in the spring, summer.
0: Okay, so before we do the friends' questions, I usually wrap up my interviews with uh, this same kind of cheesy question about basically <laughs> the most valuable lesson that you feel you've learned from skating. And of course, it goes with everything around skating. So in your case, writing, poetry, any artistic, creative endeavors you've gotten involved with throughout the years around skating. Do you have kind of a valuable life lesson that you've learned through skating?
1: Oh, man. Um, I think the probably the biggest... Uh, it's it's kind of twofold. Like, like one of the things I think about the most is just like having an honest relationship with something you care about. You know, like if you don't feel like skating today, it's okay. You know, you can come back to it. But having this kind of active relationship with this toy or this culture, like however small or big you want to frame it, is just so important. And I feel that in writing so much, like we've talked about momentum a lot and it's such a practice, you know, like whether we're talking about Sun Ra, the jazz musician, practicing at all hours of the day or writing every day or whatever, just having an active relationship with something you care about and having a good enough relationship with it that you can step away and come back and but just mm. knowing that if you do step away you're going to it's to come back stronger or to come back with a new perspective but having right. that relationship yeah. i think is is key a key learning from skateboarding mm-hmm. you know there's definitely years where like a uh, months or years where i was like oh, i don't want to skate as much but i'll kept reading magazines kept watching videos so finding ways to stay connected mhm And then just the relationship with space that skateboarding has has given us is just so huge. You know, um, the older, I'll be 39 next week, and, like, it's just i don't know like so much of my navigation of space and cities and you know like i oftentimes think like could i have ridden interstate if i didn't skate you know i mean could i have seen my Mm. grandfather's narrative in that light or the value of going with my dad to a building in new york you know like all these things like would i be a writer if i didn't skate and i don't know i don't have a answer to that but like it's just something i think about in terms of my relationship with space
0: All right, well, let's do these friends' questions. So let's start with this one.
1: Hi, Jose. I hope you're doing all
0: right. I have one question for you. (laughs) Who was the gnarliest skate crew in the late 90s of the San Gabriel Valley? (laughs) Did you recognize uh, the voice?
1: Is that uh, Ted Barrow? Yes. (laughs) Dr. Barrow. Uh, That's so good. The gnarliest skate crew... Oh, man. Well, we should note that Transworld had a really good Inland Empire article in the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Man, any crew associated with, I think it was Jed's board shop or Jair's board shop out of Upland. There were some rippers. But I feel like, I don't know about crew, but whatever crew JP Jadid was a part of is probably the gnarliest crew in the San Gabriel Valley. That guy, in my opinion, is the king of Chafee. So uh, we'll go with them. I will say like Girl and Chocolate, they always had like random flow writers that were out in, in San Gabriel Valley. And there was this kid, like I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put it out into the world. There's this kid, Joey Gallo. I think his mm-hmm. name is Joey Gallo from Covina. And he was part of like Utility Board Shop. He was a ripper from like Baldwin Park High School. That whole vibe, the whole scene. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but yeah, final answer. I'll go <laughs> JPJD. <laughs> he's a one man crew and uh, he is, he's the King of Chafee.
0: All right, let's do the next one. Hi, Jose. It's your friend Nina Renata-Aaron with a question for you. When's the last time you discovered a book or a song that really made you feel something? And what is that book or song? That's a good question.
1: That's a really good question. What's up, Nina? Man, I'm looking around my <laughs>
0: office Trying to find, right find now. inspiration?
1: Okay, well, song-wise, my friend Washu, he uh, put me onto this band called Earth Dad. Mm -hmm. They have a very cool song called Poughkeepsie. It's off their EP called Townies. It's just like a really sweet indie rock song that isn't necessarily something I would like, but I really like that song a lot. Okay. I also really love this band called Los Silvertones. Um, They have this song called... You call me by my name. It's a kind of a. You can probably find it on YouTube. But yeah, Los Silvertones. You call me by my name. It's like a deep cut oldie song, super badass song that I just found on vinyl in Portland through Mississippi Records. But yeah, uh, book wise, I really I'm reading right now this book called James by Percival Everett. Okay. Percival Everett is a fiction writer based here from uh, in Southern California. He teaches at USC, very prolific writer, and it comes out. It's a retelling of Huck Finn from the perspective of basically uh, the slaves in the novel. And it's like a real kind of 180 of American literature. But yeah, Percival Everett, James, it comes out next year, and I'm really enjoying it so far.
0: Okay, let's do the next one. Jose, my friend. Hello. I was thinking just now about the first time we met in person, which was in Oakland, California, where we skated some curbs and then went for a beer and enjoyed each other's company. And then I was thinking (laughs) about the next time we met in person, which was in Arizona. In particular, a certain car ride we had with the great skateboard writer, Mike (laughs) Munzenrider, talking music and skateboarding and enjoying each other's company. And it got me wondering, who are three non-skate people, living or dead? No skate writers, no podcasters, no skaters even, but three other people, writers (laughs) maybe or filmmakers, or whoever, that you would most want to talk about skateboarding with? Who do you want to sit down with, living or dead, non-skaters? Okay, thanks.
1: Wow. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Kyle Beachy. Uh, that's super cool. I can't say Sun Ra because we've already, we've already talked about Sun Ra, although that would be a really fun conversation. Definitely. Maybe the poet Frank O'Hara, he did lunch poems, and he's like a very observant kind of fellow. That'd be fun to, to talk it out with him. Um, let's see. Susan Laurie Parks. She's this amazing American playwright. She did this play called Top Dog Underdog. That was like a big hit 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. Susan Laurie Parks. She's just like an amazing, she's like one of my favorite artists of all time. So talking to her about skateboarding would be really fun. Hmm. And, uh, maybe Carol Walker, the visual artist, like, you know, her use of space in exhibitions is really amazing. So I'd love to hear her thoughts about skateboarding.
0: All right, let's see. Hey, what's up? This is Patrick Kigongo from the Mostly Skateboarding Podcast. This is a question for Jose. Jose, what do you think is the best video of the end of the 1990s? A lot of ink has been spilled about the early 90s, the mid 90s. But what is the best video of, say, 97 to 2000? We might even include 2001 in there just for good measure. Oof.
1: Oh, wow. Best video of 97 to
0: 2001. Um, That's tar- I was thinking about this earlier. I couldn't really come up with any very satisfying answer to that question. But yeah, oh, is, is there one that comes to mind for you?
1: I feel like it's got to be like a 411 or something. You know what I mean? Like, it has to be like a like a best of three or something. Um, <laughs> let's see from that. You know what? Actually, there is one video that comes to mind and it's Shorties Fulfill the Dream. Like if we're going to oh, go, yeah. I feel like... Photosynthesis, yes, of course, is amazing and gets like a lot of do shine. Manic Maddy is in this window as well. But yeah. Fulfill the Dream, I feel like, is the sleeper hit. You know, Summer 98, I clearly remember when it came out. And just the rise of the Muska, you know, mm. was two years delayed. You know, it was supposed to come out with Welcome to Hell. But yeah. it, it really came to form with Swishy Pants, S Shoes, Boombox, steve Olson blessing us with gangstar to open us up like i mean it's an amazing video that i think should be more (laughs) celebrated yeah like i feel like a shorty's truther yeah it should be like more (laughs) canonically recognized i guess but like it's really good like fulfill the dream is a banger and um yeah i'll go with that thanks patrick
0: okay uh let's see
1: hi joe's I'm so thrilled to be able to ask you a question from afar. I think a lot about you and your writing. And uh, I think a lot about how you talk about lurking. And I'm wondering if you might just speak a little bit to the lurk, to the idea of witness. And what, if anything, that has to do with your writing and your skate practice. Oh, man, that was Lauren Whitehead.
0: Yes. Yes. Exactly.
1: Amazing playwright, dramaturg. She teaches at NYU Tisch School of the Arts. Big love to Lauren Whitehead and her kids in the background.
0: <laughs> yeah, we can hear them a bit. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, you know, I feel like for skaters, skaters very much understand or kind of have an idea of lurking as like this loitering with intent you know like um loitering with purpose even if that purpose is a little abstract or undefined maybe you're trying to understand how a certain block or neighborhood kind of functions at a certain time of day that at least that's how i've used lurking a lot with Mm -hmm. like skating and writing of like you know maybe you're working in the city but you want to skate a city spot on the weekend you know you might time your coffee break or whatever to go pass by that spot and kind of see what it's like at certain times of day and maybe even ask around and kind of see like so like a lot of people come through here on the weekends or you know like like kind of mm-hmm. those innocent pedestrian questions that could lead to skate spots. But you know, like that very much shapes so much of your worldview as a skater and just how your your relationship with a space, how it functions at different times of day. And what I love about this kind of concept of lurking is It allows you insights into how you can access those spaces to kind of like maximize their potential, not in like a capitalist like return of investment kind of way but in like a uh how much can cool stuff can i do in this city at these times of days and if i know all the Mm. times of you know like if i know at this time this neighborhood is good this time it sucks over here it's rush hour over here like how can you navigate you know like how can you navigate and have like the best day ever with this knowledge that you've derived from lurking or from just like being in close enough proximity to a space that you kind of just know how it operates. Kind of like a good friend, you know, like you know that your friend, if you've lived with them or you know that they at might need like a cigarette break at a certain time of day or a coffee break or a, a certain type of, you know, you kind of just know how they how they flow, if they like a quieter yeah. place or a loud place, you know. So you we can have that same relationship with physical spaces as well because they have their own kind of vibrations or their own kind of energy, you know. So I guess that's how I kind of see lurking. It's like seeing how the different energies of a certain place different activities of a certain place can lead to accessing those places in ways that are, uh, you know, maximize their opportunity.
0: All right, let's do the next one. Hey, it's Indigo from Australia. And I was wondering, what was one of the most favorite cats or dogs that you've ever met? And why? Because I just love cute cats and dogs. all. <laughs> Thanks. Can't wait to hear your answer. Bye.
1: Oh man, the most favorite cat or dog, and <laughs> why? Um,
0: we talked about this a bit when I interviewed her recently, and she said she was a big like dog cat lover, or like dog and cat video on on Instagram, that kind of stuff. Oh, she mentioned uh, that she'd love to do a book about like a coffee table book about skateboarders' pets or something like that. You know, like a yeah. Hence that question.
1: <laughs> the most famous. I haven't met too many pet celebrities i don't think one time i did kind of encounter us like a pet celebrity photo shoot in la surprisingly mm-hmm. i uh i pulled up to uh, a restaurant and then the, the kind of back patio they had like a whole like area for like these two dogs that were having brunch apparently so wh- <laughs> whoever those two dogs were in santa monica a couple years ago i'm sure those were the most famous ones but hey, if indigo makes that book uh myself i'll, I'll volunteer my cat knuckles and uh, <laughs> check in with the feline union for her photography rate. But yeah, like, we'll, uh, <laughs> that, that sounds like a fun book. It's always interesting. Like, I think Jenkins has done a couple of those series of like where skaters live and stuff like that. Like, yes. yep, yep. It's really cool. Like, someone with a total aggro style on a skateboard has like this absolutely meticulous like, apartment. You know, and it, It's just yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, fun connotations.
0: Okay, let's do this one.
1: Hey guys. So my question is which Sun Ra record is the best to skate to and why?
0: Another Sun Ra question. <laughs> Did you recognize the voice? I think that was Cole Nowicki. Uh, no, that was Sam Corman. Oh, what? Okay. Awesome. But pretty close. <laughs>
1: Man. Yeah. Hi, Sam. Uh, I really liked his essay about Ashad recently. Oh yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Really fantastic work.
0: Uh i
1: think man there's a lot of good Sun Ra albums and i think some of his earlier like bebop albums like his kind of chicago era stuff like jazz and silhouette and stuff like that these are like some of the classic sunra albums those are fun because they're a little you know faster a little less like spatial so yeah some like maybe like jazz by Sun Ra or jazz and silhouettes is pretty fun my favorite album was Bad in the Beautiful. It sounds like it was recorded under like six inches of dust. Like like the recording is very like <laughs> kind of, I think it's like a single mic in the rehearsal space and it's like a little slower, a little more down tempo, but I like that album a lot.
0: Cool. Bad in the Beautiful, you said.
1: Yeah, Bad in the Beautiful. It's uh, a couple originals and a couple covers, like a lot of Sun Ra albums, um, mm-hmm. but I think between like Jazz and Silhouette and Bad and the Beautiful, that's kind of more of like the, some of his like faster stuff that I think would be, would be fun to skate to. Yeah, yeah. I think some of the dudes over in Eagle Rock, uh, like Patrick Hugongo, like some of those dudes that are skating slappies out there, skates Sun Sunraw too, I've heard through the Grapevine. So, you know, we might have to start talking about our playlist or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and thanks, Sam. Okay, then I have a few from, let's do this first one
1: hey jose music plays such a huge part in skating videos is there a particular video or part that you think really uses music well
0: oh who was that <laughs> that was uh, megan your wife
1: no way <laughs> holy <Yeah>. shit <laughs> oh my gosh wow
0: the audio is terrible on this thing so <laughs> it's normal not to recognize everybody
1: no no i'm just I'm a terrible husband. Let's just put it out there. <laughs> uh, uh, sure. Let's see. Like I think um and Clark's use in in Palisonic that when they use oh, yeah. the uh, the Apples and Stereo song that was used in the Unabomber video earlier. Like that homage to a previous like London skater, like the the Toby Shaw part. I think in the in the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like using that song was really great. You know, like because the song and the part, like the Vicky Benches. You know, as skaters, you kind of, even if you didn't know, like, like I, I didn't know anything about the Unabomber video or Toby Shaw or his contributions to, like, the scene. But, like, when you see Lucian skating the spot with that song and you're seeing, like, we're only at this spot and we're just, like, doing it, you're, like, you really... You realize it's like this is an homage to something to someone, if only the spot, but then like when you start to unravel it and you learn or as I learned like or a lot of us did like that it was an homage to to Toby Shaw's part, it just made it that much more meaningful. I mean Lucian's Park in Palisonic is like an absolute all timer and mm. it's it's just it's such an amazing video, so yeah that's probably my favorite use of music, and I gotta say a close runner up is. And I've written about it a lot, but like using Nas if I ruled the world for Kareem Campbell's trilogy. Oh, yes, yeah. That's just God tier. Yeah, I mean, like it makes perfect sense. And the music, the cadence of the music and the skating is just unbelievable. Mm. Like people talk a lot about Gino's part in trilogy, as they should, and just the way that Jizza works with Gino in that part. But like, I mean, for me, it's all about Nas and Kareem. Like, that was just, Mm. I just love it. Thanks, Megan. (laughs) Yes,
0: yes. I have a couple other ones from her. Let's see.
1: What do you think is one of the biggest challenges you have writing for a non-skateboarding audience? Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges writing for a non-skater audience is keeping the skaters with me in that conversation. You know, Um, Tony Hawk had that interesting quote about how the Olympics, you know, skaters shouldn't be thankful to the Olympics for accepting skateboarding olympics should be thankful to skateboarders for having skateboarding you know and mm-hmm. and i feel like that kind of applies with with writing like for you know uh what cordis Knights would say as uh, secular publications you know what i mean uh like when you're approaching that work you have to you know approach it with the lens of a skateboarder and stay true to that community and i think when you start explaining things to your audience as you probably will have to in a secular publication trying to do so in ways that can make all communities happy with your description you know what i mean like for instance when uh, willie staley did that jake phelps profile for california sunday magazine Mm -hmm. he aptly described how pro skateboarders make money to the adult film industry and like (laughs) i think that allowed skaters and non-skaters alike to you know laugh at that comparison or kind of acknowledge the cheekiness of that comparison but also recognize the corporal factual nature of of that description and that comparison, you know, Mm -hmm. and allowed both audiences to exist in that space that that writing created, you know, and Mm -hmm. to to see themselves like in that space, right? So no one feels ignored by that. Or or like, you know, it's it's a comparison that allows people to see the physical nature of what we do, as well as the kind of pay for play nature of what skateboarders do and, and the way that it's transferred through video and stuff like that. So yeah, I feel like, That's kind of how I approach writing for like non-skateboarding publications about skateboarding is, you know, if given that opportunity, you do have like a responsibility to represent skateboarding in a way that you feel is true and authentic to yourself. And you do have the right to say, no, let's articulate it this way. And like, let's talk about things this way. And, And you also have the agency to work with those editors to say skateboarders wouldn't say it this way or skateboarders wouldn't describe ourselves this way. Mm hmm. If you have the creative direction to like tell a photographer how to take a photo that doesn't necessarily take skate photography all the time. Like, you know, if you're in those newsrooms or even as a freelance capacity, you can find those ways to have agency and try to represent
0: for the skateboarder or POV. All right. I have a last one from Megan. Cool.
1: What is a skate site that is gone now, but you wish was still around? What is it that made it special that you think people should know? Oh, wow. Uh... If people remember the old TomYeto.com, this was in the '90s. It was like a, it was you know the TomYeto website. So for all the foundation toy machine brands and stuff like that. But it had a really good, like, news page that was updated pretty frequently. And that's how I found out about, like, Carrie Gets kick-flipping the love for. And they had an email hosting, too. So, like, my email account in high school was, like, at com. Super oh, nerdy sk- <laughs> skater stuff. But, uh, yeah, com. That was a cool one back in the day. And had some early chat boards and early kind of skate community stuff that was, like, you know, circa 1999, 2000,
0: 2001. So uh let's do the very last one
1: jose what's happening well i know what's happening you're being interviewed right now to that (laughs) end i have a question for you in interstate and chip do you blend meticulous research on subjects from everything like the history of california labor movements to sunra with the personal your personal and I personally love that approach. For you, what's the draw in bringing your story into the wider context of a subject and vice versa? Uh, yeah, thank you, Cole. That's a very good question. Um, you know, it's a question I consistently ask myself, too. Of Like, you know, do I have a role within certain materials that I'm talking about? And if I'm going inter- to inject my own personal narrative within these types of experiences, like, you know, wh- why am I doing that? And what is the role of that? Mm-hmm. I think that's that's like a foundational question of like my approach to nonfiction writing and probably all writing in general. And I feel like there's a, it's, it's kind of twofold. It, it's allowing my story to be a parallel potentially to someone else's or to a reader's or to an insight into how all this research and stuff can affect someone. And I think by way of doing that, hopefully it creates an invitation into like my world, but also allows people to kind of see themselves kind of through their writing and kind of see that like almost to affirm certain thoughts or certain impulses or certain kind of like underlying feelings that they may have been feeling about a certain thing like skateboarding or california or i think part of what i feel i'm trying to do in my writing by weaving all this research with my own personal histories and kind of experiences is is to try and see where those places intersect and at those moments of intersection, like what is this, are there like significant things that are microcosmic of larger truths or larger kind of uh, historical moments? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is the significance of some of these things and of of being there at a certain place in time and witnessing certain events? So it's kind of like, it's almost like a self-archiving, but also a kind of recontextualizing history through personal narrative, and like which was like a lot of interstate. And also seeing how a lot of this research and, you know, a lot of the things I'm talking about, how history is a very short accordion, you know, that expands and contracts very easily, but that a lot of the histories that I'm navigating are extremely recent. And, you know, like mm-hmm. the fact that I was able to talk to my grandfather about these things was is crazy. You know, skateboarding itself is is so young, right? Yeah. So I think it's also just recognizing how much time is like a flat circle and how, you know, how active some of these histories are. And if like if we have the ability to visit a skate spot still or talk to someone still or interview someone or take a road trip, I'm also trying to show the power of saying yes to pursuing those ideas or those questions and the work of trying to find answers to them. You know what I mean? I think that's Mm -hmm. also something I'm trying to show, too, is. Like skateboarding and learning a trick and putting yourself out there in that way, so too does writing require a certain vulnerability that, for me personal, like nonfiction allows me to navigate and present to audiences. Yeah,
0: this is kind of a side question, but have you ever written like uh, any fiction writing? Like, is that something that you've ever tried, experimented with, or or not really?
1: Totally. Yeah, I wrote like a fictional play. When I was in like in my mid twenties, and that was like my first uh, first project, I got like a grant behind, and it kind of got me on my feet as a as a as a writer, performing artist um, in my twenties. Like the grant basically became a security deposit that lasted me for like three apartments, kind of thing. Uh, okay. So you know, kind of got me going. But from there, I haven't really done too much. And one of the things I'm actually working on now is a short fiction thing that I was commissioned to write. So um, okay so yeah kind of trying it out you know seeing seeing how it fits a little bit but uh which is kind of like a welcome break from writing like back-to-back big nonfiction projects so. yeah
0: yeah it's a different kind of approach and yeah yeah it must be yeah. interesting cool when is that gonna come out
1: probably next year there's like an anthology that i'm contributing to and okay. uh yeah so it'll probably come out next year
0: Well, yeah, let's wrap it up here. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, José. And as I said, like to all the listeners, uh, keep your eyes open for your new book, Chips, coming out in April. April 16th, you said, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me. Thank you.
0: That's it for my conversation with José. Follow him on Instagram at vadiparty, V-A-D-I-P-A-R-T-Y, Go to his website, josevadi.com to check out some of his work, pick up a copy of Interstate, and pre-order his upcoming book, Chipped. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Boys.